Yeah, those wicked dance steps remind me of the old Muhammad Ali. I, <laughs> Is that a pleasant to, memory or not? <laughs> <laughs> not a pleasant memory, but you did real good. You should be proud of well, this. Well, thank you very much, sir. I appreciate it. Chuck, I got to ask you, you were away for so many years. You had built a five-in-one record or so. All of a sudden, after so many years away, you came back. Why? Well, yes, sir. It was originally my intent in leaving the ring was... Uh, uh, a combination of things. One was career indecision. I didn't know whether to go into entertainment, dancing, choreography full time, or pursue the boxing. Approximately the same time, I uh, incurred an injury to my right wrist, which made it almost impossible for several years for me to fight. So uh, I uh, tuned all my interest and in, in, uh, time into dancing and in the arts, and finally my hand got okay with the help of, of new manager Henry Harris. and. Uh, we're, we're on track again, hopefully. Okay, look right into those truth cameras over there and let us know, do you believe, truly believe in your mind that you can one day become a middleweight champ? Uh, yes, sir. If, uh, if I didn't believe that, I certainly wouldn't be back. I, I'd much rather wear makeup on my face than adhesive tape, but uh, <laughs> unfortunately, this is where the, where the money is and, and I love the sport, so here I am. The man's name is Chuck Walker. He's a former Olympian, and now he has dreams revitalized once again of becoming the middleweight champion of the world well we're back with chuck walker who was in the 76 olympic uh boxing team and i know craig you got a couple of questions for him directly about the olympics take it away okay yes i agree it's time to get to the olympics themselves and chuck i'd like to know a little bit about the metric that it took to actually make the team the weight class that you made the team as your actual experience competing for the U.S. Olympic team and just share those thoughts because there are very few people that get to live those thoughts that you're going to tell us about. Well, of course, the, the trials, certain different trials have been going on for a long time. I say a long time, you know, all of... Uh, uh, 1976 from January and uh, but it was down to you know the the the, the real deal and uh, uh, finally I you know you had you had to you had to win enough fights to even make it to the Olympic trials to where you could fight for the Olympic and so I did finally make it onto the into the Olympic trials, uh, which was held in Cincinnati at Riverfront Coliseum, which years later became kind of a, uh, a sad spot because uh, at a Who concert out there, 11 people got trampled to death in that stadium. But um, anyway, it was 1976, it was June, and uh, we all got to the, uh, to the Coliseum, and uh, you know, it was down to, do or die and uh, fought three nights in a row against the top fighters in my weight class um, in the country and you know thank god won all three of those fights and i mean they were absolute wars these fights um, i beat jb williamson in the finals who later actually went on to become the the middleweight champion or light heavyweight champion of the world as a pro and uh, fought Henry Bunch and, and uh, anyway, just uh, guys at the top of the list. And finally, 
uh, I could say that I was on the Olympic team. All right. How did you feel when you got – I know part of it was just competition. It's not like you were picked. You won your way on the team. But how did you feel when you knew you'd made the team? Extreme relief. <laughs> I can't even say it was joy or elation. I mean, you know, I'd fought <clears> – <throat> excuse me, fought three nights in a row uh, against some <laughs> – some beasts, and uh, it uh, it was rough. I mean, honestly, I had a broken nose at the end. Um, you know, my face was really banged up, as you can imagine, after uh, after all those rounds with with three really, really, really top-notch fighters. But uh, you know, as Bobby Bear said in the song, "By God, I was the winner." <laughs> <laughs> Good puncher, has a great knockout record, over 50% KOs. But right now he's being completely dominated by Chuck Walker. When you got to the Olympics with your team, tell us about your experience of fighting for the United States. Well, it was, you know, I've said this many times, it was, it was special because not only was I at the Olympics, but I was there with uh, a group of guys who would, who already were in some, or to some degree, and who would be, you know, some of the biggest legends the game has ever seen. And, um, you know, it would be easy to talk about people like Sugar Ray Leonard, for instance, who, you know, he and I used to spar together, you know, with some regularity back then, because we were pretty close to the same weight. I was a little bit bigger, but not much. And, uh, you know, we, we, the sparring between Ray and I, or between Ray and me, it was, um, it was interesting. It, it, it wouldn't have entertained the average layman because, you know, Ray and I had a style that was actually very similar. And, um, you know, to, and, and this was referenced many times back in the day. Uh, when we would spar, it would be more like a chess match than a than a than a athletic event because I mean we we did most of our work with our minds, and you know it would have been very very entertaining to a to a purist of boxing, but to just an average guy watching it, it probably wouldn't have gotten a kick out of because we spent most of our time thinking. The other two that went on to a lot of notoriety as professionals were the Spinks brothers, Michael and Leon. Uh, give us a quick thought about a memory of those two. Well, once again, um, uh, Michael and I were, were right next to each other in the weight class. I was a light middleweight, and he was a middleweight. So I was 156, he was 165. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, he seemed a lot bigger because he was he was very tall and and naturally a bigger man, but uh, he and I sparred a lot actually, and uh, uh, you know had had some very spirited contests. Uh, Leon um, Leon was an interesting cat. That's about all I can say. He uh, he. Uh, to put it mildly, he was not the kind of guy that that the that a trainer and managers of the team uh, 
would have felt comfortable with uh, in leaving him alone <laughs> for a long time because Leon enjoyed the nightlife and uh, he lived it. And as a matter of fa matter of fact, uh, he and I had roomed together a, a couple times for a few nights and and uh, Leon, you know, the, the, the trainers and the managers of the Olympic team, we were staying in, in uh, dorm rooms in a, in a, the, at the University of Vermont at the training camp, and they would come and get everybody up for the morning road work, get everybody up about 5 o'clock. And uh, so we'd get up and put on our, our togs and all that. And so Leon, and of course I never told on him, but Leon would get up ahead of that and he would go they had these big long narrow cloak closets like that you could just hang a suit in and that was about it so Leon would scrunch himself into these cloak closets close the door and the coach would come in to get him out of bed and he'd see that the bed was empty and he would he he would think that Leon must have already gone out to do the road work. So um, as soon as the coach went out the went out the door again, Leon would crawl out of that cloak closet and go get back to bed and go to sleep. <laughs> and uh, but a lot of us knew it, but nobody really ever said anything. Michael actually, Michael Spinks was was a, a much more dedicated trainer <laughs> at training. But, uh, you know, the, the, and, and the interesting thing is uh, when we got to the training camp in, in Vermont, you know, we were there for several weeks, and there were 25 guys there, um, you know, I mean, the best fight, the, the, the Olympic team and the, the alternates. And I tell you, it was you know it was a who's who of boxing, at least in its early stage. And uh, so, I was the only white guy out of those 25 guys. There wasn't another white guy in in sight. <laughs> and uh, it didn't make it actually didn't make any difference at all. It was wonderful memories. Um, they all loved me, and I loved them. And, yeah, it was it was good. It Tell was us good. about your nickname. Well, you know, Craig. To be honest with you, the white chocolate thing didn't come along till quite a bit later, and it actually, by the time it came along, I was I was already through fighting, and uh, it actually <laughs> it actually became popular. I was at a, a Hall of Fame event where they were honoring the 76 team, and there was a guy came up, came up and he, he said, he had me sign an autograph, and he said, man, you're white chocolate, you're white chocolate, that's all you are. And, and so some of my Olympic teammates heard him and they started teasing me about being white chocolate. And uh, it kind of, it was a name that kind of stuck but it was way past my boxing career, actually. <laughs> and, you know, back in the day, actually back in the day at that, at that time, uh, my ring name was, was Sweet Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, that was pretty much that. <laughs> uh, one other thing, you know, you, when you watch the Olympics, you, 
hear a lot about the experience with the other nations and the other athletes. Uh, where did the team stay? And just some just observations on what it was like to be with all these different athletes from all over the world. Well, it was it was interesting because you would walk through the Olympic Village, which was a big place, big place, two high rises, you know, very artfully put together. And they had to think of everything. I mean, they thought of training facilities, they thought of, of uh, you know, therapy facilities, obviously the, the, the cafeterias and things like that. And it was, you would be, for instance, you would go somewhere and, you know, maybe you'd have somebody from China, you know, doing some sort of sport that you'd never even heard of, you know, practicing, and then you'd go a few more steps and you'd see somebody from Russia out there doing something and it was just it was a who's who then you never knew what you were going to get I mean you walk you could walk through that place and and it was it, it was really just unbelievable the the different kinds of activities you'd see I mean some of the interesting things about the Olympics is um, you know you, you see a lot of people who had already become extremely world famous I mean who was the weightlifter from Russia, Alexander Alexiev, I believe it was. You know, ran into him all the time. I mean, uh, Olga Corbett was there, the gymnast, Nadia Komenichi, who always kind of seemed like a, a spoiled little child to me, but she was always there. And, and uh, uh, gosh, who else? Uh, well, I mean, one, one timely <laughs> person was Bruce Jenner, who, uh, Bruce, I can tell you, he was he was so well developed physically. He had an absolute perfect physique, and he was so. I mean, he was the rampant male, and he was just a good guy. I mean, I didn't know him well, but we chatted a few times. And we, the the thing about Bruce is Bruce was actually staying on the same floor of the Olympic Village as, as I was. And we actually got acquainted because oftentimes we would take the elevator down and we'd happen to get on the same elevator together. And, you know, we'd bitch about the, uh, about the training camps and we'd bitch about this and that because we were all pretty tired of everything by then. But uh, nicest guy in the world, you would never ever think that he would become what he became. And I'm, uh, I won't, I won't <laughs> enlarge on that, but but uh, just, you know, to, to, to think that he has become what he's become, you would never have thought of back then. He was just a regular, regular woman-facing <coughs> guy. To kind of wrap up this segment, uh, tell us about your match that you fought. Uh, it was against the Polish fighter, the Polish rep, and... Uh, he was a southpaw, and I've always hated southpaws. And uh, I don't hate southpaws. I hate to fight them. <laughs> but uh, uh, he was a tall, thin guy. He was about 6'2". Um, not much of a puncher, to be honest with you. Not much of a puncher. Uh, but 
the fight was uh, extremely, it was not close. It was extremely lopsided in my direction. And I say this with no hesitation whatsoever. And I've said it ever since that time. Uh, I just plain got robbed. The decision of the judges, three judges voted for him, two judges voted for me. Of the five judges, there were four from communist bloc nations, from Eastern, Eastern nations. And it was just, I have to say, it was a horrific decision. And that's not bad blood, that's not bitterness, that's just actually stating facts as they were. Now, you know, I, these years later, you know, you look back and you say, if that had, if that decision had not gone the way it did, you know, how would that have changed my life? You know, how would those 12 minutes of an amateur boxing match have changed my life if I hadn't gotten robbed? And, you know, it could have, could have meant a lot, you know, good or bad, it could have been a lot different. And uh, as I understand it, uh, Jersey Rubicki was my opponent's name, and he went back to Poland. Uh, he actually did fight more in the, in the forthcoming Olympics. He actually won the gold medal again in the, uh, as, as I recall, he, and, and he did win the gold medal. He went ahead to win the gold medal in, in our Olympics after he beat me. He had several more fights and just plowed through the rest of his fights. If I had won the fight against him, I would have had a rematch with a guy from Puerto Rico that I had already beaten in an in international competition. And uh, so things could have gone a lot different. It seems to me some of it was just luck of the draw. You know, if you got the guy that ended up winning the gold medal in the first fight and and uh, I think fair to say, at least controversially lost to him. You know that's pretty good. Well, uh, you never feel good about it, to be honest with you. It's been however many years now, 40, 50 years, and I still don't feel good about it. But you know, life goes on. Now there's something interesting about Chuck Walker. He's a tap dancer. He's a peer. Ted Max program three times as a tap dancer, and he wants to go to school and become an actor. And boy, if he doesn't look like a fellow by the name of Newman on the screen, I miss my guest. Handsome young man, and a great stylist. And he is absolutely... Try to conclude and uh, fascinating uh, conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I think that uh, this is kind of my own observation and following sports as I do, that uh, there's been a lot when I uh, uh, talk out in the boxing world about who is the greatest Olympic boxing team. And it seems to come down to your team and the 84 team that included Mark Breland, Pernell Whitaker, Evander Holyfield, and Tyrell Biggs, who were all substantial pros. I think that, uh, in my view, the big difference was your team fought all the teams that per ever participated in the Olympics. Russia, Cuba, all the communist teams. Where in 1984, that team did quite well, but 
the Russians, after we boycotted their Olympics in 1980, all the Eastern Bloc and Soviet nations, including Cuba, did not fight in the 84 Olympics. So in my unbiased opinion, I think that you had the better team for that reason because you had to beat all the competition. We'll just leave it at that. I think that I'm going to turn things back over to Gary to kind of wrap things up. But uh, lessons I learned today was uh, how demanding the sport is, how hard you have to work to do well at it, and uh, just the, the t entire dynamic of what it takes to be an athlete in the Olympic Games. Well, thanks, Craig. I got just one thing, um, just as we wrap up, Chuck. So do you still keep up with the guys now, some of the guys from the team, and how, how are they doing these days? Um, you know, there, there have been, there has been several um, uh, reunions of the team over the course of the last many years. And also we get together, you know, occasionally at, at uh, the Hall of Fame ceremony or something like that. So we're, we're all, actually we're all, we've lost some of us, but yeah. those who are left are, we're all still extremely close. And that, that's one thing I'd like to mention. I mean, we as a team, uh, which I understand is kind of unusual, but we were all really, really close friends. I mean, we became very close. And that closeness has lasted throughout the years. And, um, you know, we still see each other with, with some regularity at, at events and at, uh, you know, the, the Hall of Fame ceremonies. And we're, we're still just, we're teasing each other. We're still messing around like we always did. And it's, it's, it's something that has lived on in my life and I wouldn't trade it for the world. Very good. Is there anything we didn't talk about or I didn't ask that you want to, you know, to tell us about? Hmm. Well, just, uh, you know, just to sum up my career, I, you know, after the Olympics, I went back into my first love, the entertainment business, and that has brought me to Texas. And I now have a, a film company out here. Gary and I have done some things together and whatnot. And, um, uh, you know, just it, it's, it's been a long, boxing was a long, a long road. And after the Olympics, I did turn pro and fought for a long time as a pro. I actually got up into the top 10 in the world at one point as, as a middleweight and uh, never could quite force the right fights at the right time. But, uh, you know, ended up fighting all together about, about 20 years. And that's a long time to fight. And I was, thank God, I was a defensive fighter, and I, I, uh, I think I still have my marbles about me. So, uh, yeah, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, very good. Well, we sure appreciate having you here. We'll have to have you back one day and talk more about the movie business because I know that's been like a boxing match. Just, just competing to uh, get your movies out there and get them distributed, and I think it's worse. You think it's worse? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll definitely have you back to talk about that. Chuck, yes. thank you. Craig, thank you. And uh, we'll be up. Uh, our next podcast will be uh, will involve music. So yeah, well, be sure to tune in for that. We're going to talk about. Uh, 
The four iconic Beatles albums and our special guest will be Bill Statz, who formed one of the early uh, Beatles tribute bands, the Fab Five. Sounds good. Stay tuned to next time. We, uh, we'll see you then. Ladies and gentlemen, the judges again have ruled for the winner by a majority decision, Chuck Walker. Thanks for listening to an episode from our first season of Not Fadeaway Archives. Our fall season drops September 20th, don't forget. The high-tech world allows us to archive memories from a period of time in a manageable way we could never have imagined. We would like to invite you to join us. We encourage comments and ideas you might have. We have a list of future possible episodes on our website and our Facebook page. If you feel like you could contribute information about an upcoming episode or even be a guest, we would like to ask you to email us at notfadeawayarchives at gmail.com. Our suggestions for episodes are a small fraction of the possibilities. We plan episodes on memories of events like the JFK assassination and the moon landing, which are memories we all share. But we want to learn about events and people that many of us might not know about that would make episodes we would all like to know about. We hope our published and suggested episodes stimulate many more program ideas. Much of the inspiration for Not Fade Away came from an annual reunion Craig attends with college friends. Most of the conversations centered around memories from over 50 years ago. We're going to reach out to colleges and things like the 55 and over communities to help us reach alumni and residents. Baby boomers have memories to share that are literally infinite. Our funding mechanism for Not Fade Away Archives is Apollo Art Speakers. Apollo Art Speakers produce excellent sound by vibrating aluminum photo art. Like Not Fade Away, these speakers are about memories. Let's let an Apollo art speaker owner tell us about his. Hi, I'm Bobby. I'm a retired Texas public school administrator. And since I've retired, uh, I've been building a, a man cave out at our, our place in the country. And I'm here today to show a few friends uh, what it looks like. Here's my great TV, big screen TV, listening to some great music and displaying some great artwork. There's an interesting story about this piece of artwork up here, this beautiful piece of artwork. In, in 2017, my mother-in-law passed away and my, my wife was sitting on the side porch of our, uh, of our house here and she noticed the beautiful sunset uh, to the west across our pond. She actually took this picture using her iPhone and uh, the picture turned out great and we turned it into a piece of art. Great music coming through a great speaker system and the great thing about it is that artwork that I just talked to you about, that is actually the sound system, audio system uh, produced by Apollo Art Speakers. The distinction about the Apollo Art Speaker is the clarity and detail in the music we're listening to and the television. 
the things I told you about is what makes Apollo Art Speakers a great product. But the special thing about it is we were able to use a photo that is very special to my family to build the speaker. A financial planner has a photo he took on a trip to Iceland hanging in his office. He bought the largest speaker that is sold. The photo and the sound that comes from it are stunning. Everywhere an Apollo art speaker hangs, people can't tell where the sound is coming from. They just know it sounds great as it fills the room. We also have terrific photos from a professional photographer, Dave Clements. Apollo art speakers hanging in homes and offices include an incredible picture of eagles in flight and licensed photos of Sir Paul McCartney and another one of Tom Petty. These two photographs are among hundreds Dave's published in coffee table books featuring musicians. The books are a fundraiser to combat Rett syndrome, which is a horrific disease that affects young girls. Apollo art speakers hang on the wall and are easy to install. Apollo art speakers includes a copy of one of Dave's books with every Apollo speaker sold. For more information on Apollo art speakers, visit our store on Etsy.com. We encourage you to get a free subscription to Not Fade Away Archives wherever you listen to your podcast. The music you will hear now is on a vinyl record playing through an Apollo art speaker unfiltered through a single mic. Our memories will not fade away. I'm gonna tell you how it's gonna be. Are you gonna give your love to me? Thank you.